I don't know when I became one of the world's leading experts on license plate readers, but apparently that's what I am now. Every time it sees a license plate, there is something showing where that car was at a particular time in a searchable database. And as a result, you have this database where if a law enforcement officer is like, I wanna see the travel patterns of a particular person, they can look up their license plate and get a map of everywhere that person has been over a period of time. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Surfshark Wave podcast. Today on the show, we have Dave Mass, who is the Director of Investigations at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So hi, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Could you tell me more about uh, sort of the focus and work of EFF? Yeah. So EFF has been around since about 1990. Uh, you know, our mission is to defend people's liberties as technology advances in our society. And that's a pretty broad mission. Um, it ranges from issues like net neutrality and making sure that um, uh, copyright laws are not abused, all the way to government surveillance, whether it's international surveillance or malware targeting journalists, all the way down to local police surveillance. Um, and that's where I specialize. I specialize in the intersection of technology and the criminal justice system, particularly policing technology, as well as technology along the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, we're, we're going to talk a lot, uh, I think, about one particular achievement that you guys did, but maybe you could tell me more about sort of uh, your personal achievements at EFF that you're most proud of. Sure. So I've been with EFF now nearly 10 years. I started in 2013, just a few months before the Edward Snowden revelations. And perhaps many of your listeners might be too young to remember the Snowden revelations. It's hard to think that this was, you know, nine years ago now. Um, but that was quite a, uh, a trial by fire to start at EFF, to suddenly have to deal with all of the things that come came from the NSA leaks and the controversy um, but some of the things that I've been really interested in over the years is um, it's really quite a, a broad range of things. So uh, we've done a lot of investigations related to technologies like license plate readers um, that have resulted in change and, and you know new policies and new laws, um, also around things like face recognition. But some of the kind of quirkier things are that I got to edit a science fiction collection um, about you know, various futures that we released under Creative Commons. It's called Poning Tomorrow. It's still free to download if you wanted to grab it. Um, I also helped pioneer our presence at DragonCon, the annual fantasy and sci-fi convention where everyone from EFF who goes dresses up in cosplay and goes to panels all day because there's actually a mini conference within the conference about digital rights issues. Um, in terms of some of the other investigations we've done, uh, I had a pretty big one about um, how in South Carolina, inmates who were caught using Facebook, you, you know, either by having people on the outside use Facebook for them or by getting illegal phones, like contraband phones and then accessing Facebook, were receiving decades in solitary confinement as punishments for accessing Facebook. Um, I think it's a lot of these investigations that I think I'm really proud of, especially ones that have had impact and have helped change the debate over surveillance technology. DragonCon, that's, uh, I'd like to go there and see. Do you, do you guys oh. have a panel there? Uh, we have a whole track oh. related to us. It's called the Electronic Frontiers Forums. It's organized by a group called Electronic Frontiers Georgia, which was inspired by us. You know, they grew and became their own organization quite a long time ago, but they coordinate this panel uh, or this track. It's like a whole track. So every day, all day, there are panels about technology and digital rights. 
Um, and that's quite good. Um, I, just one other thing that I'm you know, kind of proud of is that we built a, a virtual reality experience called Spot the Surveillance, which plops you down in a city scene in San Francisco, and you have to look around and identify uh, various surveillance technologies. It was very low budget, but extremely effective in my opinion. We've had you know, hundreds, if not more than a thousand people uh, experience this thing. Um, but I think probably my biggest thing these days is a project called the Atlas of Surveillance, which I think you want to talk about a little bit more in depth. And I think you previewed that. Yeah. And uh, actually the, the VR experience sounds really interesting. Is that also on your website? It is. It is. Um, it's web VR, so you don't have to download an app or anything like that. Um, it works on most of the major systems, like um, you know, on the Oculus Quest. If you open up like the Oculus browser, you can go to you know the website and bring it up. Same thing with the HTC Vive. If you use like one of the Firefox or other. Uh, web VR friendly browsers, you can use it there. It takes about seven minutes to go through the experience. Um, people seem to enjoy it. We used to go, but pre before the pandemic and before it was gross to like pass a VR headset around a bunch of different people, <laughs> yes. uh, we would go to conferences and bring it and we'd have like dozens and dozens of people try it. Um, and they would just come to our table or meet us in the hallway and they would put it on. And we've done that everywhere from like Washington DC to Sao Paulo and, you know, really helped people learn a lot about, you know, cause I think surveillance technology is often vague to people. Like they don't necessarily, they, they might understand it in like a news article or on paper, but where it exists in their community can be often vague to them. So putting them in an environment and being like, this is here, this is there, this is what it looks like, really does change the game for people. That's great. And uh, now you mentioned, uh, you know, technologies, and I want to talk about the types of technologies. And you mentioned also uh, license plate readers. And again, again, like that VR experience could help me know what it looks like, that device, right? Because to me, it sounds like, uh, you know, one of those speed radars. <laughs> Maybe it looks similar. But anyway, let's let's talk about those types of uh, uh, police technologies that are used for surveillance. Sure. So police are, you know, police departments, particularly in the United States, have an increasingly large arsenal of surveillance technologies. Um, you know, something that's probably the most common in the U.S. are body-worn cameras. Um, and body-worn cameras are, you know, are exactly what they sound like. They're little cameras that police wear. And originally, these were pitched to the public as a way to hold police accountable, to get evidence of police brutality. But really, they've become like a giant surveillance network where each police officer is their own surveillance camera capturing things on members of the public day to day. And that's probably the most common thing we've seen. But over the last 10 years, we've seen drones in police departments explode, like, and not physically explode, but like explode in use. And it used to be maybe a dozen or a couple of dozen back in 2013 were using drones. And now there's well over a thousand police departments in the United States using drones. I just want to jump, jump in uh, real What's quick. Uh, I just want to jump in. So drones, like, uh, these make a lot of noise. And uh, I mean, overall. Are they like noticeable when you're just uh, in the city and, and how are they used exactly? It depends. They can be loud, but the higher they fly, the more silent they are. And we see a lot of different uses. So some of the more benign uses of drones would be to capture aerial images of a traffic accident, for example, like so they can get an idea of what happened in the traffic accident. Some of the more questionable uses are um, things like that are happening in Chula Vista, California, where they now send a drone 
uh, almost to every 911 incident. So someone, somebody calls an emergency and says, you know, there's somebody with a gun or there's a homeless person or there's a vandal. They'll send a drone first to the scene to surveil everything before they send police in. Now, they'll argue that that results in better outcomes and less violence between police. But, you know, it's questionable about whether this actually has that long-term impact and whether it just does create a larger surveillance state. Um, but you also see them use it during SWAT, uh, you know, SWAT raids. You'll see them use it to use drones to surveil protests. Uh, we see them used in a lot of different capacities. And, and this data, I assume, is stored somewhere, right? Those images are stored on like a private server somewhere by the government so they can, you know, that data is somewhere basically that can later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. It changes police department to police department. But we are increasingly seeing agencies purchase license, uh, purchase drones that can do license plate reading or that can do face recognition. And so that's also concerning is the integration of various uh, surveillance technology capabilities. Let's talk about the Atlas of Surveillance. Um, now, sure. I'm looking at it now, and essentially what this is, is, is a place where you can explore an, an interactive map of various police tech, the, similar to what we're talking about. Uh, tell me more about this uh, project. So this project emerged from a problem we identified in that Lots of people were coming to us with very two very similar questions. And when I say people, I mean journalists, researchers, activists, local community members, and they always had one of two questions. And the first question was like, hey, Dave, I'm in Tampa Bay, Florida. I'm a local activist or I'm a local journalist. Can you tell me all the different surveillance technologies that the Tampa Bay Police Department are using? I want to know everything they're using because I want to do a report on it or I want to do some activism around it. I want to do some research around it. The second question usually comes from national organizations or national journalists who are very focused on a particular technology, so like face recognition. And they would call me up and say, hey, Dave, I'm doing a report on face recognition. Can you tell me everyone in the, everywhere in the country where they're using face recognition? And we're like, well, this just doesn't exist. Like, I can sit and Google it for you uh, and, you know, spend a few hours and I can get you some answers. Um, and they'd be like, well, why isn't there a central repository? Why doesn't this information exist anywhere? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe in other countries there's a centralized police force that, you know, exists on the federal level and every police force is the same and they all have a central leadership. But in the United States, in any given city, you might have 10 different police departments and a sheriff's office that all have different leadership and different computer systems, and there's no way to integrate that information. So you really do have to kind of Google it one by one by one. And I said, like, as much as I would like that database to exist, that would require thousands of people to help me go, you know, scour the internet to collect this information. Um, now, I kind of let that sit for a while because I was like, this is an impossible thing. We just can't do this. And then one day, the journalism school at the University of Nevada, Reno, contacted us and said, hey, do you have an idea for a research project that you could do with students? Um, and I'm like, how many students? And they're like, up to 150 students each semester. And I was like, aha, <laughs> I know what project we can do. And that's where this started. Um, it's actually you know, how it works to build this, you know, the Atlas of Surveillance has kind of several main components. One is a map, 
which is kind of showy. People like maps, but I think the thing that's more useful is the searchable database where you can put in whatever city or county or state or police department you're interested in, or you can select a, a technology and not select any geographical information at all, and it will return information, return who's using it around you, it'll return who's using face recognition around the country, and you can export that data and do whatever you want with it. In addition, we also have a library of uh, other data sets that people can use. So if they want to do their own research on a particular technology, and actually some of Surfshark's research is in our uh, database or data library as well, so people can access it. Because there's so many people doing work in this space that it really does need to be pulled together. Uh, I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but let me talk a little bit more about the project. Yeah, I'm so no, excited no, about no worries. I just had a question. Maybe uh, uh, can, sure. can other people? How can people can contribute towards this uh, if they uh, spot uh, a surveillance uh, technology? Can they sort of send it to you so you can add it later onto the map? Yeah, we have a section on there where you can send us things that you want us to add to the database. You can also contact us to volunteer. And let me explain how the the process works for. Uh, contributing to the Atlas. So we have set up a, a process called uh, Report Back. It's a tool called Report Back, where you come to Report Back and you say, give me an assignment. And you hit a button and it will give you a 20-minute research assignment. You shouldn't spend more than 20 minutes on it. Um, maybe sometimes it'll take people less than five minutes. And we'll give you a piece of information like body-worn cameras in um, Detroit, Michigan. And your mission is to just go into Google and just Google body-worn cameras and use, you know, you try different terms, body-worn cameras, body cams, body cameras, try Detroit, Detroit Police Department, go to the Detroit, City of Detroit website, pop it in there, and just do that until you find, like, a government document, a press release, a news article. You can even go to the Facebook page of the Detroit Police Department and look at pictures of police officers and see if they're wearing a body-worn camera. And then once you find at least one piece of evidence that they have that technology, you come into a, a, a Google form and you just fill out what you found and you categorize it. And then that comes to us and then we clean it up. We've had, you know, um, like, gosh, I'd have to look up, but I think close to 2000 assignments come through this system right now. Um, so that's mainly how we do it. Uh, there are two other methods that we ingest data into the Atlas. Uh, one is through what I call data journalism, where we find data sets that exist on government websites, or we find data that other organizations have already compiled. And then we, we you know, uh, play with the data, we sort it, we filter it, we adjust it to meet our criteria, and then it goes into the Atlas. Now when we're talking about surveillance and surveillance tech specifically, uh, there's always going to be uh, two sides of the coin. Obviously, there's one side that's saying this is, you know, this is making us more secure. This is better. This is here to catch, you know, criminals and and things like that. And obviously, there's the other side of the coin, which probably we stand both uh, on uh, as uh, privacy advocates. It's a privacy issue, right? So. Is this security over privacy a good trade-off for people? You know, over the years, I've kind of moved away from the thinking about things in terms of, of that duality of privacy and security for a couple of reasons. One is that for security, you often require privacy. That if you are, you know, if your privacy is being violated, that might make you more subject to stalkers, to identity theft. Uh, uh, abuse by police who have gone rogue and are doing stuff for their, you know, by corrupt police officers. Like, I don't think that you can really have 
like privacy without security. But I think that there's a lot more issues now in play because we have these automated systems. Like it may not be an issue of privacy if a technology is misid- you know if a technology is misidentifying you and you know technology accuses you of being a suspect in a murder or something and you weren't but the technology makes a mistake. It's not really a privacy issue, right? Like nothing has been exposed about your privacy. It is a due process issue. It's an investigative issue. It's a innocence issue. It's a civil rights issue. Like, and I think that's what we're moving towards is thinking about these civil rights that are going to happen that implicate privacy, but maybe implicate over-policing and over-incarceration as well. There could be this, this loop where if police put surveillance technology in a community that, say, is predominantly black, well, then they have more data from that community, and they're sending police to that community more often, and then they're getting more data, and then they send more police, and they get more data. And suddenly, technology has resulted in increasing the inequities in policing in our society. You mentioned technology, and maybe it's a good time to start talking about it in more detail and maybe specifically automated license plates, uh, plate readers. Um, tell me more about that. So when I started at EFF, I didn't have a car and I did not expect that automated license plate readers were going to take up as much of the, my brain space as they have over the last decade. I don't know when I became one of the world's leading experts on license plate readers, but apparently that's what I am now. Now, license plate readers are cameras that are attached to like an image recognition algorithm, and they're used to identify license plates, grab the license plate information, so like the numbers and letters, and attach it to a database, well, put it in a database attached with the, the geocodes of the GPS coordinates, as well as the time and date stamp, so that there is a, every time it sees a license plate, there is something showing where that car was at a particular time in a searchable database. Now you'll see these license plate readers in kind of two different configurations. You'll either see them in what are called fixed locations where they're attached to say a traffic sign or a light post. And they're always in one place capturing all the cars that pass through an intersection. The other thing you see is these cameras attached to police cars. And then police cars as they're driving around are collecting information. And we've even seen a process called gridding where police officers, when they're not responding to a particular crime are told to just drive up and down every block in a neighborhood over and over and over capturing information about everybody who lives in that neighborhood. And as a result, you have this database where if a law enforcement officer is like, I want to see the travel patterns of a particular person, they can look up their license plate in a license plate database and then go into the license plate reader database, put in that license plate and get a map of everywhere that person has been over a period of time. They can even go in and say, show me uh, what other cars have been seen near that car on a regular basis in order to build out people's networks. Or they can say, I'm going to put it in an address, like maybe that's an abortion clinic, maybe it's an immigration office, maybe it's a cannabis dispensary, and they can see what cars have been seen around that location. So it's actually a very invasive technology that can reveal a lot about people, and there hasn't been a lot of regulations about uh, its use. We've seen a few states pass very limited regulations, um, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. But now this technology, is it placed on, like, it's not probably on every intersection or, uh, or does it depend on, you know, state by state, city by city? It depends on city and city by city, county by county. So um, it's not going to be on every street, like when they install it, like it's not going to usually often be in um, 
like residential neighborhoods necessarily. However, um, I so between my house and the big shopping center on the other side of town is on a street called McCarran in Reno, Nevada. And if you get on McCarran, you will notice every intersection has license plate readers all the way from like the university campus all the way to the other side of the town where there's like a big shopping mall area. And that means police can track you in real time. So if they want to add you to a watch list, they're like, oh, you know, uh, you know, Dave, you are, you know, a suspect. They are like, we just want to keep an eye on you. They can put it in there and they can track me in real time. Be like, oh, he's at this intersection. He's at this intersection. He's at this intersection. And then when I stop showing up on that particular street and I turn down something else, they have a good sense of maybe where I got off and where I was going to, and they can zip over to that neighborhood. So, um, but we've seen, you know, um, you know, a common way that license plate readers will be installed in a small town is to put it at the entrance and exit so that nobody can visit the town without coming on, getting on camera and being recorded. Um, uh, but we see in some places, you know, some cities that will install 200, 300 of these cameras and that covers quite a lot of the major intersections. Uh, but also, you know, to play devil's advocate uh, for a little bit, um, if, you know, if I'm from a police point of view, if there's a criminal and, and, and this tech is out there to, you know, assist me in catching him, I mean, that's powerful tech. But again, it can be used. Uh, again, the privacy issue cannot be ignored for, for obvious reasons. But still, uh, I think there... I think that's probably the argument that you hear the most, right, about this technology helping to, you know, catch essentially people who do are, are doing bad things. You mean you're going to say that, but then the fact, the practice, what they're not going to say is that there's an issue with uh, license plate readers misreading a license plate and putting a person in danger. A common thing that we see these days is that rental car companies if somebody hasn't returned a car on time, a rental car company will report that car stolen and then they'll recover the car because somebody will turn it in and then they won't contact the police and say the car is no longer stolen. So then the next person who drives that car is just driving around. Maybe they're going to Disneyland or Universal Studios, you know, with their family, having a great time. And boom, they're being pulled over by a cop. People are jumping out, pointing at guns at them. They're being put in handcuffs because they're told, you know, police think that car is stolen. And really, it was just an error in the system. But that happens a lot. There's actually a lawsuit um, against one of the rental car companies in Illinois uh, because of this constant problem that has resulted in lots of people being uh, pulled into dangerous situations because this technology has just not been um, executed in a way that is safe for people. Um, you know, we've had cases where like a, a you know a bunch of, of of black young people in Aurora, Colorado, were pulled over, hauled out of their car because the license plate reader said their car was stolen. And when they actually looked, like the police actually looked a little bit more closely, having already traumatized for life, like a whole bunch of children and youth, they realized that the thing had been a mistake. The license plate number was the right number, but their car was a Colorado license plate and the stolen vehicle they were looking for was actually a motorcycle from a totally different state. Wow. Because the U.S. state has its own license plates. And so nobody's going to, you know, police are not going to highlight these incidents where people are traumatized. Like, you know, 
you know, they don't, they don't advertise that. They don't explain that. They don't say like what the outcomes are other than, oh, well, we, you know, recovered this many stolen cars this year. We found this kidnapping victim or thing like that. And I don't think it's really fair for police to decide that, that it's an acceptable cost to traumatize tons of people across the country in order to recover some stolen cars. Like, I just don't think that's their, you know, um, that shouldn't be a decision they make. There should be decisions made by elected officials with input from the public about what's an acceptable risk and how they're going to execute a surveillance technology if they use it. But most police departments in the U.S. are not using license plate readers in a remotely responsible fashion. I would say most police departments aren't even giving it any thought about what it means to use it responsibly. They just use it in the way the vendor says to use it. And the vendor has a stake in cloud storage for this stuff. So the vendor will say, collect everything, store it for a really long period of time, share it with everyone in our network, because that's how they make money. When really, for public safety, for privacy, you know, not holding on data for a long period of time, not collecting more than you need, not sharing it with people is what we want to see. But that's at odds with the profit motivation of a lot of the vendors. Now, forgive me, because, uh, again, EU, uh, EU citizen here. <laughs> uh, but I yeah. feel like, shouldn't there be some sort of process to weigh in, uh, you know, uh, the sort of pros and cons before we install this system? Uh, how does it work in the U.S.? Do they just, again, they yeah. just sort of throw this technology in and see what happens? Because that's what it seems what's, ha what's happening, because all of these incidents... Yeah, there's not a lot of safe checks and balances in place. One of the things that our organization, along with the ACLU and uh, the American Civil Liberties Union and some other organizations have promoted, is a local accountability law that cities and counties can enact called CCOPS, or CCOPS, if you want to say it another way. But it stands for Community Control Over Police Surveillance. And under such an ordinance, which has to be approved at the city level or the county level, Anytime law enforcement wants to get a surveillance technology, they have to write their policy, they have to and do an, a privacy impact or a civil liberties impact assessment. And then they have to go to a city council in a public hearing where people can weigh in and get it approved. And that city council is going to hear from its constituents, it's going to hear from organizations, and they may say, no, this technology is not appropriate. Or they may say, the technology we're interested in, but your policy is wrong. And so you need to rewrite your policy. Let's now talk about the U.S.-Mexico border because EFF has done some work there. Uh, tell me more about it. So the U.S.-Mexico border has become very militarized over the last 20 years or so. It has become a place where law, where law enforcement, the Department of Homeland Security, um, Customs and Border Protection are deploying all kinds of technologies that you would maybe see in a military context, but now it's on our border and it's not just monitoring the border itself, but it's monitoring border communities. And this ranges from surveillance towers to surveillance blimps to little ground sensors that they, you know, place, you know, in various properties. Um, it can involve license plate readers and face recognition. Um, it's a whole range of technologies that we're, we're, we're you know, we're spending a lot of time trying to learn more about. Um, because some of these technologies, 
maybe they could be justified in some manner. But we should all be concerned that the border is becoming a super militarized zone. So this, all of this really does disproportionately impact the people who have historically lived in these communities. It seems like it's uh, like a playground for all this tech, essentially, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Like some of my colleagues went to the uh, Border Security Expo in San Antonio this year, and where they have these demonstrations of all these wild technologies that they're deploying. And of course, one of the ones that is the, the hot one this year are these, some people will call these robot dogs, but that is a very controversial thing because they are not dogs. They are <laughs> quadrupeded robots that can be outfitted with deadly weapons. And like, they are not here to lick your face and, uh, you know, be cute and comfort you when you come home. Uh, but people think of them about them as dogs because they kind of look like them and that's how they're being marketed as. But really, they, you know, this idea of having these robots patrol the border um, is frightening, especially since you can just imagine a time where a, board, where a robot kills somebody or a robot seriously injures somebody because this technology is very, very, you know, problematic and dangerous. I'm interested. Uh, I think I've seen a few, I think, prototype videos of these dogs. Um, didn't I, I wasn't I never was aware that they were killer dogs or, or soon to be. Uh, but uh, how advanced are they? Do you know much about them? Because it seems like this tech, you know, when talking about robots, this is some expensive tech. I mean, I can imagine someone, you know, snatching a robot and going off to, I don't know, black market or something to sell it. So I think it's very possible. Yeah, I mean, they are really expensive. I mean, but but the border has been so politicized that Congress has willing to just throw tons of money at the border, like, you know, basically give the Department of Homeland Security a blank check for all of these technologies. The same with the, you know, only second only to the U.S. military. You know, the U.S. military can, you know, spend billions of dollars on a single ship and they can drop a ton of money on, you know, harebrained, you know, mad scientist proposals just to see if it works. They may never use it, but let's spend a billion dollars on it. Department of Homeland Security is kind of the same way and they'll try anything. And so there's always this question of like what their actual motivation is. They're going to say it's to secure the border and stop drugs and all of this stuff. But is it that or is it to make it look like they're doing this stuff? Because, you know, President Trump, his big promise was build the wall and, you know, be hard on, on border security. But like the wall didn't really do much. You know, it was just a show for him to make a campaign promise. Same with Biden is that Biden's like, well, we're not going to build the wall, we'll build a virtual wall. And so being able to trot out all these technologies make maybe makes him look good. And so it's always unclear whether CBP is doing this for its image or it's doing it because it's actually effective and it's actually solving a problem. Now, they're going to say there is a problem with people crossing over and people crossing over with drugs and people crossing over with, you know, human smuggling. But there's always this question of whether if there are these if these societal problems exist with illegal border crossing, is this actually something that can be solved with technology or is this something that needs to be a policy problem? Like if we're if the problem is there's a whole bunch of people who are seeking refuge from Latin America because of, let's say, um, you know, who are climate refugees. That because of climate change, they are having to leave and go someplace else. Is the problem that they're crossing the U.S. or is the problem climate change? Like, you know, CBP is not caring about climate change because that's not its mission. Its mission is border security and it answers to whoever's president. And if the president is not going to prioritize you know, helping with 
you know, global climate change or economic stability, or, you know, then it's not, or creating a, a smoother process for asylum seekers, then that actually is exacerbates the problem. And it's not necessarily solved by tech. We spoke about, you know, uh, just actual residents being spied on, but let's talk about, uh, you know, journalists uh, being uh, surveilled and even hacked uh, at the border. And, uh, you know, there's even questions can a agent, a border agent, like take uh, informations, like you know, journalist phone or whatever, uh, destroy it or get the information, delete it, whatever? Um, so this is a complicated question that it's often going to depend on which, you know, if you're crossing the U.S., whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. If you are not a U.S. citizen, you do not have a ton of rights when it comes to, you know, the, the U.S. does not have to let you in, and they're going to claim. That you know, they may say, "Well, I want to search your phone," and you may say, "No, you can't search my phone." And then they're going to say, "Well, you can't come in." And then you have to make a decision about what you're going to do at that point. Um, this is why we recommend that uh, people do not have biometrics set up for their phone when they cross the border. Um, like, make sure you have it set to a passcode because they can still get into your phone if they have like very sophisticated technology, but it ups the stakes for them. But for U.S. people, they can't prevent you from coming home into the U.S. Like, they can't do it. But what they can do is make it a pain in the ass for you. Um, so there's this thing called secondary inspection at the Border Patrol. And actually, technically, it might be third inspection at this point. Um, so we recently traveled to the U.S. border uh, in California and Mexico. And so this is what happens when you cross the border. First now... If you on foot, so we didn't do it by car, we did it by foot. So I'm going to explain the process by foot. So you come up to a gate, and before they let you in the gate, and that gate represents the line into the United States. And it used to be you could just walk through that gate, but now they have a, a border patrol officer who sits there and asks to see your ID first. And the reason for this is that as soon as you put a foot into the United States, you can ask for asylum. And so now, because so many people were asking for asylum, now they're asking for your ID first so they can decide whether to let you take that step in. And so if you've got a, you know, a visa or U.S. passport or whatever, they will let you do that step. You wait in line, you go up to a counter where there's a border, uh, Customs and Border Protection officer who looks at your passport, asks you a few questions, you know, what were you doing in Mexico, et cetera. They will often uh, submit you to face recognition, depending on which uh, border crossing you're at. But they actually, they take your passport or your ID card, they take a photo of you, and then the computer matches it against your passport or your ID card. Now, it's at that stage, they can decide to bring you into what's called secondary, a more intense level of scrutiny. And you could be there for 20 minutes, you could be there for six hours. Uh, they will keep you in a cold room and not talk to you. They will interrogate you. They'll ask you all sorts of weird questions. It all really depends. And when we were in uh, Mexico, we talked to some activists who had been, you know, humanitarian advocates. But what ended up happening is that these activists, along with a whole, some journalists and some, humani you know, uh, humanitarian lawyers, had actually been put on a watch list by Border Patrol, which meant every time they came through, they were flagged for this. Have you, I don't know, have you spoken with anyone else who, like, when you tell these stories, they get, like, surprised, like, this actually happens? Because to me, again, it sounds bizarre. Well, it's hard in the United States because so many people in the United States do not travel internationally ever. They don't get passports. Uh, and part of that is just because of the distance and the expense 
um, in traveling abroad. So a lot of people just don't, you know, they think of, of Mexico and the border as just a militarized place. Why would you ever cross? And not a lot of people necessarily go to Europe where it's a totally different thing. Like, you know, uh, I recently, I recently traveled to Europe and I was really worried about like entering the country. Cause you go online to like, you know, the Czech state department website or there's a, what's the funny word for, for like the zone. What's that? The Schengen, the Schengen the, zone. The, yeah. no, the Schengen zone. Yes. So I go and I look at the website and they're like, you need to bring, bring three months of bank statements to show that you can afford to be, you know, to pay for yourself and pay for your trip home. You need to have proof of your return ticket. So I ended up bringing this like, you know, folder with like a huge stack of like personal information. And then I get there and they look at my passport, they look at the COVID stuff and they're like, go on through. And then I'm like, well, now I've got these bank statements here. How am I going to get rid of these? Because this is personal information. I can't like go find a shredder. And so the entire trip, I'm like carrying around all of this like personal information because it's not required. What can people do uh, sort of uh, to make it better uh, and, and sort of fight against this surveillance and, and all this borders being, you know, sort of ask military zones? What can people do? They have to go, uh, you know, go to their leg legislator. I mean, in the United States, it is always helpful to reach out to your members of Congress um, when it comes to the border. EFF has like a, a call for people to use our email tool to, to message their member of Congress. That can be really useful. Uh, on the local level, you know, we have a network of groups called the Electronic Frontier Alliance. And you can get, you know, you can go to our website and look at, at um, I think it's EFF.org slash EFA. And you can see if there are any local groups in your area and get involved with them to help uh, affect change at the local level. To start is just thinking about it and, and, and noticing it and not accepting it as right. You know, not accepting it as right and not letting other people around you take it for granted that it is right. And just sort of helping change the conversation about it is going to be extremely helpful, I think. I have one last question, and that is sure. recommendations. Um, we do have a website called ssd.eff.org. And SSD stands for Surveillance Self-Defense, which has a whole series of guides of things you can do to help protect yourself. A lot of stuff when it comes to online browsing. And I would say that stuff is also really important because we now see more and more that um, law enforcement agencies are mining and accessing information through social media providers. We'll put that in the description below so you guys can check out and uh, check out some of those tips. Dave, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I think, again, this topic is fascinating and uh, I always love to hear uh, you talk about it. So maybe we could have you for a future episode sometime. <laughs> sure thing. And Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And uh, hey, if you care about your digital rights and, and you want to know more about this crazy cybersecurity tech and surveillance and obviously uh, your rights, then definitely follow us on the Surfshark Wave podcast. Stay safe, stay connected.